Good morning. Good to be here with you guys. It's been about five years since I was last able to visit at your church. And this is probably, in a good number of years, one of the few times that uh, we've been able to be here on Sunday morning with you. So it is good to be with you. We want to thank you, my wife, Bonita, and I, for being partnering with us, uh, I think, since about 1991. Charlie Tyler was a pastor here at that time. We came with two little baby girls in tow, and uh, I think maybe it may have been the very first missions conference that you all had at that time as a church. And over the years, we've been able to continue to, to visit. Thank, I want to thank the Plowdens for allowing us to spend the night out at their lake house. That was very nice, and we were able to enjoy some college football. My wife's a Georgia graduate. And I'm a Clemson graduate, so. But we we watched Tennessee and, and South Carolina play last night, also. But uh, I wanted to thank the Wick and uh, also for the food and goodies that were in the in the lake house. Uh, we couldn't eat all that food; it was way way too much. They're still out there, okay? Some of it. But uh, we uh, we want to just uh, just. Well, we're just thankful for you guys. Uh, we're thankful for the opportunity we've had to be connected with you all these many years. We know that these visits are so infrequent, it's hard for you to probably remember who we are. But in spite of that, you've continued to give faithfully uh, out of your church budget to us. Uh, we are with Mission to the World. We have been with Mission to the World since 1990, so we have 28 years missionary service under our, our belts. When we were going out 28 years ago, we had three little, well, we had two little girls, and then we had a third baby before we left, and so our girls all grew up in Lima, Peru, where we spent 15 years uh, doing church planning. The direct church planning, we were always in a team, and were able, by God's grace, to see one church get firmly established. A uh, second church plant is still there, but it's, it's not, I wouldn't say it's doing real great, but uh, that's in God's hands. Uh, from Lima in 2008, we came, we're still with Missions of the World, but we went to the border ministry, lived in El Paso, Texas, and ministered over on the Mexican side of the border uh, for about five years. And then in 2012, God rearranged the border ministry. Uh, it was out of our hands. And um, we took a call with Mission, with Mission of the World still, but we moved to Monterrey or Monterrey, Mexico, Mexico. So in Monterrey, Mexico, a little city of about 5 million people, we've, we've managed to live in these big urban areas our whole uh, missionary careers, although we didn't grow up in big cities. But a uh, little city of about 5 million people. It's on the northeastern side of Mexico. We're only about a three-hour drive to the U.S. border, either going to Laredo, Texas, or going to McAllen, Texas. If anybody's ever been to the South Texas Valley area, uh, different, different area of the world, obviously. Uh, but uh, we, Monterrey's a modern city in many ways, um, very prosperous city in comparison to many places in Mexico. It's one of the highest per capita incomes of any city in Mexico. A very business-oriented city, lots of industry, lots of uh, fab. Uh, 
assembly plants or, or fab, uh, what do you call them? I can't even think in English. <laughs> factories, factories. They're fabricas in, in Espanol, in Spanish. So factories. Uh, people uh, live and die to work. I mean, they're, the people in Monterrey are, are workaholics. Uh, people are leaving early in the morning. Schools start early at 7.30, so people are getting out with their kids, going to school, uh, coming back late at night from their work, 8, 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. So anyway, as we were there ministering, we were working with something, uh, working with Mission to the World, but the, what we have is called the Center for Church Planning, or Centro para la Plantación de Iglesias, CPI for short. And so in the CPI, our, our three main thrusts have to do with helping to identify, working to identify potential church planners, uh, providing a basic training program for them in the area of church planning in particular, 16 modules over a two-year period, and then providing them with a coach. We're serving as coaches, uh, coaching church planners. And our thrust is to the northwestern part of Mexico, Monterrey, but also then westward. We're, in particular, there's a project that we are in collaboration with the National Presbyterian Church of Mexico um, called 10 Cities in 10 Years. I think you can gather in 10 years, we want to see church plants start in 10 of the largest, most important cities, particularly in the northwestern part. Of Mexico. We're halfway through that. Five years have gone by. We have five church planters now on the field working. We're looking for five more church planters. We know we're not going to plant 10 churches in the next five years, but the idea is to initiate all of these church plants within the next five years. So that would be a key prayer request that I would ask that you all be praying for that God would raise up the Mexican nationals who are called to go and plant churches. These are going to cities of a million people, three-quarters of a million people, no churches, Presbyterian churches, or maybe one small Presbyterian congregation in a city of a million. So we want to see more churches started, new churches started, and we need really pioneer-type church planters. They're going to be out way far away from uh, a strong support base. They have to be able to start from scratch. And that's not an easy task for anyone. But some people are particularly gifted. So pray that God would help us identify them, that the training would be uh, effective, and then that our coaching also will be effective to help them start these new churches. Thank you again so much for all that you have meant to us. Um, Let's read some scriptures and then pray and then... See what God has for us today out of his scripture. We're going to be reading from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 26. I'll be reading from the NIV. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The agent went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you will give to him the name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. 
The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is is in her sixth month, for nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And the angel left her. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this portion of Scripture. I ask that you would uh, give us ears to hear. Uh, spiritual insight for the glory of your name. Amen. Today, as we think about the world in which we live, and of course now with all the election uh, propaganda that's been swirling around these last few months, the battles that are taking place, uh, I guess South Carolina, do you you have elections for Senate races? Not this time. We're over in, in Chattanooga, so we're reading all the, the Senate race over there and the governor's race. But in general, as we've observed society, our society, over the last 20, 30 years, uh, it's easy to become somewhat uh, jaded or somewhat discouraged. Uh, we seem to be living in an age when disagreements between people are becoming more violent. Uh, when we, well, and just in general, the, the violence in society, uh, families we know have disintegrated over time. Um, life just seems to be, in a way, crumbling. We don't even seem to recognize, at least I don't at times, that this was a nation that I grew up in that 40 years ago seemed completely different. And there's been a lot of change. There obviously has been a lot of change, and that change is continuing. But when we think about this passage that I read this morning, of course, this is something we normally would use at around Christmas time, but this passage is also speaking to us, I think, of our own situation in in a specific way. We have to think back now to the time that this was taking place. About 2,000 years ago, what was the nation of Israel? What were the Jewish people experiencing at that time? Prior to this, of course, they had been living in their homeland. They'd been a prosperous nation under David and Solomon. And now those many centuries have gone by, but now they're living under almost captivity. They were deported to Babylon Their nation was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed. We know that after 70 years, a group, a remnant of them, came back. They began to rebuild the city, rebuild their lives in in Palestine. But at the same time, all those years, even after they came back, they they only had a very small time when they actually governed themselves, when they actually had rulers that were not under the authority of foreign powers. First it was the Persians, then the Greeks, then the Romans. And then multiply that with 
with another aspect of what they were experiencing up until this time. We know that the end of the Old Testament with Malachi ended about 400 years before the beginning of what we know as the New Testament. So you have 400 years of what we call silence. God did not send any new prophets. There was no fresh word from God. They had the Old Testament. Obviously, they were reading the Old Testament. But there wasn't that sense of freshness, that sense of what is God doing? They're living under oppression, under foreign governments. There's a great sense by the time that our Lord Jesus Christ was born of probably uncertainty, probably a sense of, how would we say it, despair, a sense of what is going to become of us as a people, our nation. The same questions that we would have, I think, in our day and age right now. Where's our nation going? What has happened to us? Things, so much change has come. I think this passage speaks to them. It spoke to them, obviously. And it speaks to us because it answers basically two key questions. Two key questions that we all, all, when we always face these questions. But the first question is, does God care? Does God care? Does he care about us? Does he care about your church? Does he care about your person? Does he care about our nation? Does he care about Mexico? Does he care about the world in which we live? And then if he does care, is he able to do something about it? So does God care? And if he does, is he able to do something about it? So thinking back to the situation the first century Jewish people were living in, thinking of our situation, what does this passage have to tell us? Now, we're not going to lose, we don't read the whole chapter of Luke, just this one part of it. But we see here that God intervenes. Luke's gospel brings it really, uh, how would it's again, it's just sort of a startling, direct appearance of this angel called Gabriel. So, if you think again, they haven't heard from God directly for 400 years. Now, all of a sudden, you have this angel appearing two times in Luke's passage, Luke's chapter 1. First time he appears to um, a priest named Zechariah with a tremendous promise, an incredible promise. And then now in this passage, he is appearing to a young lady named Mary. In both cases, he announces to both that there's going to be a miraculous birth. That God's going to do something. In the first case with Elizabeth and Zechariah, or Zechariah and Elizabeth, he's telling Zechariah, you're old, Elizabeth is old, you're past the childbearing, she's past childbearing age, she's never been able to have children, but listen, Zechariah, you're going to have a son. And he couldn't believe it. And we know, remember the story, he's, the angel says, you're not going to be able to speak until this child is born because you would not believe what God is saying. But then the same angel six months later comes to this young lady, Mary. She's engaged to Joseph. They have not fully finalized the marriage. She's never known a man. She's a virgin. And the angel says to her, Mary, you're going to have a son. 
Now, we'll look at a little more in detail of what the son is going to be, but again, it's a miraculous birth. And she, her question is, well, how can that be? I, I've not known Joseph. We've not been together. How could we have a child? And, of course, he tells her, it's the, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and you're going to bear this son, you're going to conceive. So we have these two miraculous conceptions promised. But, of course, there is a difference between them. With Elizabeth and Zechariah, at least it would be through natural means, through normal means of childbearing, of a sexual relationship. With Mary, it would be extraordinary, way out of the ordinary, something that's never been repeated, never been done before, never will be done again. God says, you're going to bear a son. You're not going to know a man. You'll be con- the, you will conceive by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so after all those years of silence and oppression, God is intervening. God is intervening. He's coming in two instances very directly, very unexpected. When there seemed to be no hope, God's acting. Now we know, of course, the gospel story, the gospel, the Lord, the story of our Lord Jesus Christ begins a long time before the announcement to Mary through the Old Testament promises of God's going to send his son, send the Messiah. But here we see the beginning in Luke's gospel, we see the beginning, the, the culmination of those promises. And those promises are still being carried out. They're still being fulfilled. We don't see, we will not see until Christ comes again, the complete fulfillment of even all these promises. But this is the beginning of the end, if you will. Paul says in Galatians 4.4 that God sent his son, born under a woman, born under the law, when the fullness of time had come, when God's purposes were ready. And so God acts. And this act, above all other acts, if you will, the announcement of the birth of Christ, is the act that shows us that God does care. He was very aware of the situation of his people in the New Testament, in the first century. He's very aware of our situation, whether that's personal or as a church or as a nation. And God is acting. That's what he's telling us through this. This is the beginning. But God's telling us, I am acting And I will continue to act. And that's an important message for us. Because we tend to lose sight of that. We tend to lose sight and lose hope and lose confidence. And we become focused on ourselves, on our situation, and forget that God is working. So God acts. He is able to act, and he does act. Then tied in with that, of course, is the message, the particular message that God gives to Mary. A wonderful message. And I want to break it down in basically three parts. First part is God's words of grace to Mary in verse uh, 28 and then verse 30. Verse 28, the angel said to her, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And then in verse 30 again, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor 
with God. You have found favor with God. The Lord is with you. Think about what the angel's telling Mary here. Think about it for her, but I want you to, we're going to think about it for ourselves as well. You have found favor with God. What does that mean? Sometimes in Christianity, people are tempted to believe and do believe that they find favor with God by what they do for God. That is, if I'm obedient, if I'm uh, faithful, I'm a good church attender, I do good things for other people, the list really varies. But the idea is, I find favor with God because I have done something for God. Okay, that makes sense? But I want you to think about this passage, think about the whole of Scripture's and see that that is a false view. Many people believe it. Many people act and live as if it were true, but it's not true. What the angel is saying to Mary is, Mary, you have found favor with God, not because of who you are, Mary, not because of what you've done, Mary, not because of your obedience, because of your faithfulness, not because you are a young lady, not anything in you, Mary. There's nothing that has called God to favor you but what we would know as God's grace, God's giving freely of his love, putting it upon Mary. This idea of being favored is also used in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 6. But there it's translated in the English Standard Version as accepted. God has accepted us in his Son. It's the same word that is used here as, and translated as favored. So this acceptance, we know, in all of the scriptures, is never based on human, human obedience, never based on human worthiness. It's always given freely by God. It's always given without, well, without cost to us. It's given with complete freedom by God. And so I want you to think for yourself this morning. Do you, do you understand this? Do you sense it? Do you feel it? That God favors you. God loves you. God has accepted you completely in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot add anything to that. You cannot take away anything from that. God does not favor you because of what you've done or who you are, what you might do. God favors you as he favored Mary because he chose to. And that's a wonderful thing. So God favors her. He comes to her and he tells her that. That's very important. He tells her that. The Lord is with you. You are highly favored. Think of those words for yourself. You are highly favored. Who, me? can't be how can I be highly favored I know who I know at least some of what's in me but God's saying that to me and he's saying that to you in these words to Mary 
The second portion of his words to Mary have to do with this son who's going to be born to her. He says, first of all, his name will be called Jesus. And that simply means or has a direct connection in the Hebrew to the idea of salvation or of God's salvation. So his name will be Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. He's the Savior. He will also be called great. He's going to be called the Son of the Most High, the Son of God. There has never been a person who has been who is as great or who will ever be as great as our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given the titles the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And this title, this idea of he will be great is is a description that's used without any qualification. In other words, for example, John the Baptist was called great among men. It's modified. Among men, he was called great. But with Jesus, it's not he will be great among men. It's simply he will be great. He is great. He is above and beyond all others. So much so that John the Baptist himself would say, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And also then he says, and this is he of whom I said, after he comes, after me comes a man whose ranks before me because he was before me. So our Lord Jesus Christ is given the title, great, the son of the most high, the son of God. He will also be given the throne of King David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. These two ideas linked together give us some idea of the dimensions and the extent of our Lord's reign. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, I think applies specifically to the church. He will reign over his church forever. He reigns over his people from all across the world, from all the many nations, from all the many peoples, from from centuries past and who knows how far into the future. But when he's given the throne of David, David is a symbol in the Old Testament of God's reign over the earth. It's not just a reign over Israel but really over the earth, of God's reign. And so he's in the line of David. He, he inherits the throne of his father, his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. But the idea here is not just a limited geographical rule. It's what we know from the Scriptures as being ruling over all of creation. He rules over everything, every nation, every people over all the times, over all the events. Our Lord Jesus Christ has a reign that will never end. There can be no other kingdom like his. There is no other kingdom like his. Think of all the kingdoms that have existed historically in the past. Some lasted a long time, yes, hundreds of years. But they've all either failed at some point or diminished in their importance. Britain ruled over much of the world in the 1800s, 1900s. Britain no longer rules over much of the world. 
They could say the kingdom, the sun never sets on our kingdom. They can't say that anymore. But his kingdom knows no end. That's the final climatic statement about his kingdom. Every other kingdom has come and gone. Every kingdom that is will end someday. No important which nation, which time, none of us, none of our earthly kingdoms, none of our earthly governments endure forever. Things change. But our Lord Jesus Christ reigns. He reigns from the beginning of time till the end of time. He's always reigned. He's always governed the world. So God is reinforcing his action of the appearance of Gabriel with this important message. Because after centuries of oppression by other nations, after long periods of times of disappointments, of what really were short-lived revivals and renewals, the people of God in the New Testament time at this time had continually experienced failure and oppression, hopelessness. But God is intervening. He's saying, I'm in control, I'm acting, I'm working. And this action of God also does something very important for us. It takes away all boasting. It takes away all of our boasting. It takes away any nation's capacity to say, look what we have done. Look what we have accomplished. Look how impervious we are to ever fading away. God says, no, I am acting. I will act. And I will act and continue to act. Even in the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, his actions will continue. Even in the future, in the future of the new heavens and the new earth, God is going to continue to act govern, rule, and it's all beyond our human ability, all beyond what we can do, what we can scheme to do. This, I don't know, again, this passage to me is, is uh, a passage that just speaks so clearly of my inability my wife and ours inability to do anything worthwhile, if you will, to make any kind of lasting change. But it speaks very powerfully of God's ability, of God's power. And he is working. He's working here among you. He's working in Manning. He's working in South Carolina. He's working in the United States. He's working in Mexico. He's working in every nation on this planet, among all peoples. And the final words of the angel to Mary sort of bring this, I think, down to a, a final climax here, a final summation. Because Mary is troubled, she's a bit fearful, but at the same time, she's not doubting like Zechariah did. But she, she's really wondering, how can all this be? How, how, can, how can I have a child? How can Elizabeth have a child? How can... God, how can you intervene in the world in the way which you're going to intervene? She had many legitimate questions. And so the angel says to her, there in verse 20, 37, sorry, verse 37, for nothing is impossible 
with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Which is another way of saying, of course, everything is possible with God. But somehow putting it in that negative format highlights the importance of it, or it it brings it out a little more forcefully. Nothing is impossible for me, God's saying. I can do all things. Your situation, Mary, is not impossible for me. Your situation, wherever you're at now in your personal life, in in, in in your lives, there's nothing impossible for God. That doesn't mean that he's going to take away all or solve all of our problems or take away all of our problems immediately. But at the same time, it means that God's saying, there's nothing impossible with me. Sometimes when I think about the ministry that God has called us to be involved with in Mexico, it seems very small, very limited, impossible. I mean, just locating church planners men and their families that are willing to go and they have the gifts and abilities. Uh, Even if they have all the gifts and abilities that we can perceive, still what we're asking them to do and go and be involved in is an impossible task. To go and live in a new city where they don't know anybody, to meet people, to share the gospel, to disciple people, to build a church. That's a big calling. That's a big task. That's impossible. I can't do it. I don't even know that I can train them, really, by myself, obviously. It's impossible for me, but it's not impossible for God. None of these things are impossible for God. None of the situation that we live in in the United States today is impossible for God. So he he is asking us to do something, just as Mary did. He is asking us to believe. He's asking us to act in faith, yes, to believe, to obey him, to do those things that, humanly speaking, are impossible, to move forward, because nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, because nothing is impossible with God. Nothing can hinder the advancement of God's kingdom in this world, because nothing is impossible with God. And remember this, that God delights to use our weakness. God likes, delights to use our inability because he's going to receive all the glory and the honor and the praise. So let us, let us ask God to work. Let us trust God to work. Let's keep going forward. Let's not give up just in despair or confusion. Because God is acting, he cares, and because God is able to act. And do as Mary did when she says at the last, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this word. Lord, act. Act here in Manning, South Carolina. Act through this church. Act in Mexico. Act in in this great world in which we live where there's so much confusion, so much violence, so much destruction. Lord, bring healing. Your son is the great king. He reigns. 
forever and ever. Give us faith to believe that and to act upon it. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord.